In September 1999, NASA's spacecraft Mars Climate Orbiter neared its final destination, a stable orbit around the planet Mars. But as luck would have it, the spacecraft was sucked into the Martian atmosphere and it disintegrated. Postmortem analysis revealed that the thrusters of the orbiter had misfired by a factor of 4.45, a random number to most of us, but one that was curiously familiar to NASA's space scientists. Why did this finding cause them so much embarrassment? Welcome to the WorkBrain Podcast. Hi, I'm Preeti Kautamarthi. I'm a behavioral scientist and I love all things related to understanding human behavior. I'm Anupam Krishnamurthy. I'm interested in applying behavior science to solve real-world problems. At the WorkBrain, we explore how we can apply interesting ideas from psychology and behavioral science to our workplaces. In today's episode, we talk about scarcity and what it does to our minds. Now back to 4.45. This number happened to be the conversion factor between the metric unit of force, Newtons, and the British unit, pound force. NASA had specified the thrusters force in metric units, whereas the subcontracting firm, which had built the spacecraft's thrusters, had interpreted this number in British units. Given the mission's magnitude, importance, and its widespread coverage, this was an embarrassing mistake. In the days leading up to the launch, the Mars Orbiter mission fell behind schedule like most large projects do. The team put in long hours and had to cut several corners to meet the stringent launch schedule. In the process, they missed a few crucial checks which led to the mission's tragicomic failure. Now, NASA's engineers knew that errors are inevitable and they subject every part of their mission to several well-documented tests and checks. So what had gone wrong this time? How did such an obvious error escape the notice of some of the most precise minds on the planet? So what happened was that the engineers and the entire team was facing a really stringent deadline. And in the face of this deadline, they had a big source of scarcity, in this case time. And thereby, their minds were altered in a certain way because of the scarcity that they faced. And the effect that it had was that they were so focused on meeting the deadline that they managed to cut a few corners and skip a few checks. And somehow this even obvious mistake about how the thrusters force was specified in a different unit slipped through the cracks. So that's the kind of effect that scarcity can have, have on our minds. And as we can see, this is regardless of how smart these minds are or how capable they are. It affects all of us universally. So through this conversation, we are trying to dig deeper into what scarcity does to our minds and the kind of effects that it can have. So Preeti, what is your take on what's happening here? Well, I think what the NASA scientists went through is something that all of us have gone through at some point in our life, in our work life. I remember a couple of weeks back, we were sending out a survey to customers and we had a deadline. And in our hurry, we forgot to capture the phone numbers of the customers, which is probably the most important thing we wanted because you have to relate it back to our database. We totally missed that. So I think what they were going through is actually, to put it very simply, if you can imagine our mind, our brain as a pipe, 
this is a pipe that has a lot of things going in this time this energy there's money there's resources there's so much that's happening in that pipe and just like a typical pipe it can clog what scarcity does is basically it clogs the pipeline it clogs what what psychologists call bandwidth so it clogs the bandwidth and that actually causes these uh, effects like the one that the nasa scientists went through got it in fact scarcity is a it, it's actually now a very known concept and psychologists have been studying scarcity for a while but the funny thing is the beginning of studies around scarcity were not even because of actual interest in the subject it started because surprisingly because of footnote on another study so it turned out that during the world war uh, during world war 2 researchers across the world were trying to find ways uh, to re-nourish the people who were starving in the war so in one such study in the university of minnesota 36 people volunteered and uh, the only catch was that they first had to starve themselves to be a part of the study and while all other effects on their metabolism and physical demeanor were being studied by the scientists they also saw something really weird they realized that these people were only and only talking about food all the time they would look up recipes they would discuss food and that that actually went in as a footnote in the study but then some psychologists caught that and they realized that scarcity of food actually got these people extremely focused on food so i think that was where the whole idea of scarcity in the mind became a thing yeah in the example that you mentioned a uh, physiological need which is the deprivation of food had a psychological effect which is that exactly. they thought about food uh, a lot of times so so who has done some of the most seminal work in scarcity probably the most famous book on scarcity which we totally recommend our readers to uh, get hold of is this book called scarcity why having too little means so much which is actually a book by santil mulyanadan and elder shafir and in this book they have a lot of examples around how scarcity affects us and what i really find very very stalking about the kind of examples they give is that in a lot of the experiments that they give people are not even actually in a scarce situation they're just made to feel like that so i remember in one of the experiments the participants are randomly made to feel either poor or rich with a random paycheck that they're given at the start of the experiment and then immediately after that they have to play a game say for instance they have to play wheel of fortune and uh, during wheel of fortune while they are guessing the letters in the word puzzle they're made to feel scarce again with the number of guesses that they get so the poor part the so called poor participants they get only 6 guesses per round whereas the rich participants uh, they get to have uh, 20 guesses per round and just this notion of feeling poor or rich actually ends up having an impact on their performance on a cognition test that's done immediately after the game what are the what are some of the other psychological effects of scarcity well as you can imagine there are multiple ways that this can affect us one way is that we tend to make more mistakes when we are actually tunneled on something so that's also called tunneling which is that being so extremely focused on what's happening in the present that you're not able to look outside of the tunnel and uh, consider the bigger picture as some might say so that's one impact of uh, scarcity mm-hmm. uh, another impact is when you are uh, in that in when you are in a scarcity mindset you're also trying to save on some of your bandwidth so you always 
think of multitasking as a response to scarcity but as you know we most of us actually cannot multitask and there are a lot of examples of how multitasking can lead to the wrong uh, results so that's another example of how scarcity leads us to do something that's not completely right and the third uh, way in which scarcity affects us is actually making us very myopic in how we look at needs so we become very focused on short term needs and we don't think about the long term needs which is also called present bias so uh, roughly these are the three major negative implications of scarcity so that would be tunneling multitasking and present bias from a behavioral perspective what is what is tunneling and how does that work well to put it simply tunneling is when you are focused on a particular task and everything else goes outside of the tunnel and uh, like we were talking earlier just like scarcity can be a scarcity in anything it can be in time money or anything same way tunneling also has an impact due to all of these things a poor person who is currently in a debt trap is tunneled into only and only thinking about uh, money at that point of time similarly if i have a deadline and i am working towards something then i am in a tunnel where i am only and only thinking about that task and i am neglecting everything i may miss my lunch i may miss replying to emails i may miss everything else because i am so tunneled into doing what's happening in that point of time the thing about tunneling is that while while in a tunnel you only see the benefits that are there in the tunnel but the costs that are associated with it may actually be outside of the tunnel and you may totally miss that because you're so focused on what you can actually see in the tunnel in front of you right now and we see tunneling happening in both the examples that we have explored both with the nasa engineers as well as with the yeah. with the pe- people who were in that study who were starved of food so they they exactly. could only tunnel on that on that food and that's why they were thinking about food all the time yeah in fact uh, i was actually fasting a couple of weeks back and i totally relate i mean it's nowhere close to being completely scarce on food but i remember that day all i could think about was food in the middle of meetings i was dreaming about the food i was going to have in the evening <laughs> so i can totally imagine that being on somebody's top of mind if they're scarce on food and similarly scarce on other things as well yeah so on on one particular fast i been to this mall where all i could see was what other people were eating and I, then i realized yeah. oh my god people eat so much at malls <laughs> yeah and one one other natural response of this tunneling is multitasking and um absolutely and i'm trying to look at tunneling and multitasking with an example like an example of a manager who's sitting in a meeting and answering emails so like you said the benefits of this activity multitasking is visible to the manager but the costs are invisible so the benefits could be she's doing two things at once she's answering emails as well as attending a meeting but the cost of doing this maybe the team needs better decisions and more attention from her in the meeting and the quality of her decisions obviously suffers or even the quality of the emails that she's sending out yeah absolutely in fact uh, i think uh, like we were exploring earlier the impact of multitasking is it's a very specific case of tunneling but for the person who's in the tunnel the multitasking is an efficient use of the limited resources that he or she has so he actually feels like he's had the benefit of saving time but the cost that they're paying for it 
is the cost of distraction which they may face much later the most common example of multitasking is texting while driving there are so many studies that have shown that uh, having a cell phone in your hand while driving is actually worse than uh, driving under the influence of alcohol there are studies which have also shown that eating while driving can also be as big a problem which means that no matter what we do if you're not focusing on the actual task at hand we are only going to pay the cost of it much later hmm and one more thing that occurs to me when you're multitasking is context switching so let's say when you're constantly doing when you're doing two tasks simultaneously you're constantly switching your attention between these tasks and here there's some research by a management professor called Sophie Leroy she coined the term attention residue so it's pretty analogous to when we are painting a picture and we are using two colors one after the other so after using the first color we need to carefully clean the paintbrush before we go on to the next color otherwise the first color is likely to spill into the second one so similarly when we move on from one task to another our mind is still processing the first task even as we are paying even if we are consciously paying attention to the second task and that reduces the amount of mental bandwidth that we can dedicate to this task yeah yeah that totally makes sense um uh, but with the multitasking part right like i want to push back a little bit based on perhaps my perhaps my own experience i'm very guilty of doing this myself but in some situations i'm able to multitask more effectively than others for instance when i'm taking a walk i can also t- talk keep a conversation going with a friend or when i'm doing the dishes i can also listen to a podcast so is there some nuance on whether some tasks are amenable to multitasking and some not i think the idea that we started out with was scarcity and multitasking so when you're doing dishes you're already on an autopilot mode mm. and you're not using your active you're not using system 2 and actually thinking about which part of the brain you have to use to wash dishes it's a autonomous activity and it keeps happening and it's the same thing with walking as well uh where it becomes problematic is when you have to actively use your brain to do a task and in that task your bandwidth is getting consumed and while that's getting consumed you're trying to push in another activity as well i think that's when it becomes hard so whether that's driving where you need to pay attention to the road while you are eating or when you are in a meeting and you're trying to listen but you're also trying to send a message to somebody i think those are the cases where the bandwidth is getting constrained so in multitasking in any context is a trade off in some cases this trade off is viable in some other cases it's not but the problem is we are not very good at telling when it is viable and when it is it yeah so when it comes to multi- mitigating the effect of multitasking and switching costs a couple of examples come to my mind one of them is the no meetings wednesdays initiatives at, at shopify whereby they have a company wide policy of not scheduling too many meetings on wednesday so that people can get focused work done and the second one is uh, as a concept called whip limits in kanban now kanban is a project management methodology where the entire team has a kanban board which is nothing but a board which has all their to do lists and each of these to do tasks are assigned to specific team members now a whip limit is nothing but a work in progress limit it tells you that you have to have limited number of to dos on your kanban board and this 
prevents the team from working on too many things at once and switching too much context. So whip limits can be either imposed on having a blanket whip limit for the entire team or having individual whip limits for specific members of the team or, or both of them. So one advantage is that it prevents people from working on too many things at once. The other advantage of having whip limits is that it helps the team identify bottlenecks, whereby if there's one task which stays on the Kanban board forever, they realize that it's it's blocking their entire team or the project's progress. Right. I mean, I mean the entire philosophy of Kanban is actually built on the idea of increasing efficiency by cutting down on all these additional tasks, which I think plays out really well in the context of scarcity. Let us talk about the present bias. Well, I think the uh, the idea behind uh, the present bias is basically the fact that uh, we are sort of wired for survival and we instinctively focus on the present. We focus on the short-term needs. In the case of scarcity, it compels our brains to focus even more on what is urgent and what requires attention right now. Uh, and this this plays out in many, many, many ways, uh, especially in the context of poverty. I think uh, we've always asked this question about why the poor remain poor or why the poor make wrong decisions. One, uh, one very common example of that would be crop insurance. You would think that a farmer who is entirely dependent on the weather and the weather being unpredictable can actually lead to a lot of implications for him, which means that crop insurance seems like a very, very logical choice for him. And somehow farmers actually never take crop insurance because for them in the present, spending money on crop insurance with a benefit that's outside of the tunnel, like we had discussed earlier, it just does not make sense to them because in the present, they need that money for something else. And I can actually relate to this a lot because in one of my previous jobs, I used to work a lot with farmers and we would often ask this question, like immediately after the harvest, there would be so much activity and they would always be uh, looking to make all the right decisions and buy better pesticides because they have the money, because they can sell the harvest and they get the money. And then somewhere halfway through the crop cycle, they're always short on money. Just trying to understand the harvest point a little better. So when they are after a harvest, they have a lot of money. So in the present moment, they have abundance or a lack of scarcity, so to speak. But So they, yeah. they have a certain kind of mindset about how they look at the future. But when when that changes, when they are not in the harvest season, they are short on money and that completely changes their outlook. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is, I mean, although this example is very specific to farmers, I think most of us, that myopia that you see in the difference in their decision making when they have money and with don't, when they don't have money is something that all of us face in different types of scarcity. So closer to uh, an organizational context. So how does present bias actually play out? You know about, uh, you know how during lean times companies cut down on marketing budgets, mm -hmm. but that's actually a really weird decision, right? right? Because lean time is exactly during a recession is when, Customers are also making changes to their lifestyle. They're thinking of things that they need to cut down on and what do they need to do to 
get through this recession and in this point they need to know actually which products suit their needs better at that point of time cutting down on marketing budget isn't exactly the right decision to make but from a company from an organization's perspective that is also present bias in thinking that if i cut down on my marketing budget then it's going to help me sail through this recession and which is a very short term myopic way of looking at how to spend your money right i feel like it would be a little different in terms of if you are a if you are a brand which is based on value then it makes sense to not cut your marketing budget but whereas if you are a brand that's based on luxury or lifestyle then maybe yeah, in such a time it makes sense to cut budget but what i what i feel is that across the board regardless of whether they are a lifestyle product or a, or a or a value based company they cut marketing budgets yeah in my own experience there are certain days when i feel like i've been busy throughout the day but if i think back on the at the end of the day i realize that i actually haven't been very productive so i i see this as some manifestation of the present bias that's interesting how would you actually put that into uh, this context i mean f- first of all probably because i was busy the whole day i was attending to something or the other that's urgent hmm but if i look back on the day and think of what i've done only the important things come to my mind not the urgent things right so it feels like i'm going for the urgent as opposed to tackling the more important things and that is trying to attend to the present but not necessarily what yeah. is the most impactful yeah you do realize that you just described the eisenhower matrix <laughs> right so uh, for our listeners the eisenhower matrix is a pretty famous way of decision making where it's a 2 by 2 matrix where one axis is urgent versus non urgent and the other axis is important versus not important so something that's urgent and important needs to be done now something that's urgent but not important needs to be done at a future time or you can uh, delegate it to someone who can actually do it right now something that's not urgent but it is important you need to schedule a time to do it and something that's neither urgent nor important doesn't need to be on your list the things that are important but not urgent those are the things that slip out and i think that's that's a constant battle for a lot of us both in our everyday lives as well as in our professional lives to focus on yeah, the totally. important that is not urgent absolutely yeah so so far we looked at tunneling multitasking present bias and the kind of negative effects that scarcity can have on the state of our mind but scarcity interestingly isn't all bad there are certain advantages that scarcity can bring as well so from our everyday lives we can see how when there's a deadline approach approaching we become more productive and less prone to distraction i think even twitter as a medium is a good example of harnessing positive scarcity um because of the character limit it has twitter forces people to be specific quick and brief and i think that's largely the reason for its success there's some studies conducted by Connie Gersick an organizational behavior researcher where she found that the second half of meetings are more productive again that we can re- relate that from our own experience whereby if there's a hour long meeting for the first hour mostly the people are rambling and going on tangents whereas in the second half they realize that their time is almost up and they they start making decisions and start getting more focused Yeah so uh, like you said scarcity has its benefits uh, psychologists call this the focus dividend which is a positive outcome of scarcity capturing the mind and you can see this in many forms 
like some of the examples you mentioned more productive meetings people are more focused when a deadline is approaching i remember when i was in college most of my best work came out only like an hour before the deadline and 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 there are many times in life when we actually need deadlines to get certain things done so it's not that scarcity is always bad one of the most famous uh, quotes is actually by Ernest Rutherford where he says gentlemen we have run out of money it's time to start thinking i think that's a classic example of making good use of scarcity and startups are a great example of that one of my friends who works in a pretty big company with a very lavish salary and in a very comfortable position often jokes that he wants to quit his job and go join an early stage startup just so that he can feel that scarcity and get his brain working again because he rightly thinks that being in a scarce situation actually makes him more creative yeah like one of the one of the recommendations that peter thiel the startup guru makes is to look out for or watch out for ceos or owners of companies who give themselves large salaries so he opines that if the owner is taking home too much money they are less they are less likely to be innovative or they're less likely to see the need for innovation yeah i think that makes sense we've seen how scarcity has its pros as well as its cons so let's try and discuss how we can harness the positives of scarcity while mitigating its negatives so one way of uh, dealing with scarcity is to build in slack uh, one very famous example of this which comes in the book scarcity is about the analogy of packing for a trip if you have a large suitcase you comfortably put in everything that you want when you have a smaller suitcase you start making trade offs do i have to take this uh, maybe i can make do with one pant and not two pairs the extra space that you get in a large suitcase is slack uh, and in the context of scarcity slack can be anything it can be slack in terms of time it can be slack in terms of money it can be slack in terms of energy i know that uh, theoretically this sounds very right that you have to start planning for slack But from an organizational perspective this can also be seen as a negative or a waste like why should a company build for slack or why should anybody travel with a larger suitcase so i guess in that sense we need to think about where is it that you can actually build slack can you build slack to meeting times instead of having a one hour meeting can you have a 50 minute meeting and build 10 minutes as slack when you are planning for work deadlines can you build in slack so that uh people have that independence to work around a certain amount of time uh are there certain budgets where you can build in slack and at the same time consciously think about not overdoing the slack yeah what do you think even as you mentioned the word slack i was reminded of the word slacker a slacker is a yeah. has a obvious negative connotation and obviously nobody wants to hire slackers exactly But the other imagery that comes to my mind is a sense of looseness as opposed to tension. So scarcity corresponds a lot with tension in my mind, whereas slack gives me looseness or buffer, something to deal with the scarcity. Right. And one example that comes to mind is of a delivery person. Let's say there is no slack in his or her schedule, and they have to drop off, say, ten packages per day, and that completely occupies their entire day back to back. Now this. delivery person is likely to rush from one drop off to another and along the way they are also likely to cut a few corners like they 
ring a doorbell, wait for five seconds. If the customer doesn't answer, they're likely to drop it off at a pickup station. Now, whereas if this employee had some slack, let's say uh, he had to deliver only seven or eight packages as opposed to making 10, they can use that extra time to make an experience that delights the customer. So they can probably leave the package with a trustworthy neighbor and so on. Or they could even use that time just to take a break or a rest, which is also not a bad idea. Yeah, and in that rest or break, they can probably optimize their route and get their work done even more efficiently. Exactly. In fact, uh, Henry Ford back in the day was actually criticized for talking about a 40-hour work week because other companies thought that he was setting the wrong precedent and that it won't be efficient. But honestly, given the recent example of Microsoft 4-hour workday in uh, Japan, and it actually increased the productivity by 40%. Looking at that, I think a lot of people have been, in fact, I know that recently the Finland's new prime minister now wants her entire country on a four-day work week. So I think the whole idea of being efficient in a small amount of time and using the additional time to take a break and a rest is actually not a bad idea at all. But this concept ends up being so tricky because Slack is elusive. Like Despite scheduling some buffer in your project, you're likely to eat through that buffer very easily. Like if there's a if there's a budgetary buffer, everybody knows that that buffer is going to be consumed as a part of that project itself. In fact, there's this uh, common saying or this famous saying called Hofstadter's Law, which says it'll always take you longer than you expect, even if you take into account Hofstadter's Law. So Slack is elusive and I think companies have to be very purposeful yeah. about it. Yeah, and I think it's also a very cultural thing. I know this one particular person in my company who whenever a meeting ends early, she always ends up telling people that I'm giving you your time back, which I think is actually a great cultural reference to what happens when companies start actively thinking about building in Slack into meetings, because you're literally doing that. You're actually giving people time back, which is way more valuable than anything else. But on the other hand, there is also Parkinson's law. Parkinson's law firstly states that the work always expands to fill the amount of time that you allocate to it. So in my experience, when meetings end early, there's someone or the other who comes up with a topic that fills the rest of the time. So they say, I'm going to use these 20 minutes to talk about this topic. But invariably, that topic is something that we don't know about or not that is not directly relevant to, the, to everybody in the meeting. But I think the where this starts playing out is when the rest of the people in the meeting have the independence to decide whether or not to stay there because they know that the meeting actually ended 10 minutes earlier. Yeah, I think it is, as you mentioned, a cultural thing and organizations have to be mindful of building their culture around this. I think the earlier example of Shopify was a great place to start. No meeting Wednesday sounds like a very good idea to me. Let's talk about some other initiatives that companies can do. So one thing that comes to my mind immediately is checklists. So even like, let's say whenever we are going through a routine or stressful procedure where we know that we'll be strapped for time, a checklist helps us to capture every single thing or make these checks. So Atul Gawande, who's very famous for uh, his book, Checklist Manifesto, spoke about how checklists reduce surgery complications or deaths in operation scenarios by 35%. If I'm not mistaken, I think his inspiration for checklist actually came from how Uh, pilots are required to do checklists at the time of takeoff. Exactly. And given that there are absolutely no mistakes they can make there, the checklist actually really helped cut down on the number of air accidents. And I think that's where the whole idea of checklists came into surgeries and operations as well. That's true. 
another way in which you can actually manage scarcity is by reducing the number of decisions that you have to make uh, famously i think obama mark zuckerberg steve jobs and all are known for sticking to a very standard wardrobe obama actually is pretty famous for saying this that given the number of decisions that he has to take in a day not having to decide his clothes is actually an easy one not to make in this episode we have explored the concept of scarcity and see how nuanced it can be so there are several pros to scarcity and the focus that it can bring but there are several cons to the kind of tunneling that it can do to our minds as well and in the case of scarcity as well as mitigation of scarcity too much of a good thing is a bad thing and i think this is a common theme in behavioral science as a whole so our, our discussion today reminded me of this calvin and hobbes comic where he's supposed to submit an idea for his project and he just wastes his time all day long and then when he's when calvin is reminded about it he very nicely says i'm waiting for the right mood to kick in and what is that mood it's the last minute panic so i think scarcity helps us in certain things but too much scarcity is definitely not good and there are a few better places to end an episode on behavioral science and a calvin and hobbs comic strip so on that note that's it for today's episode you can follow us at the work brain on twitter and you'll find references and recommended readings for this episode at our linkedin page linkedin.com/company/theworkbrain we would love to hear your thoughts about this episode please drop us a note at theworkbrain@gmail.com the visual design for the podcast as well as the music for the podcast was made in house thank you for tuning in and until next time